You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It'll be really fun. We've mm. never really done that before. We've never shaped the board together yeah. at once. So. What was the original, uh, or do you remember the original kind of design theory when you built that board? Because nobody had surfed in a wave pool before. Really. Totally. I remember it really vividly because it, it was a completely different thing. And um, Tom come on board uh, probably around about 79 or something like that. And he was a good mate of my brother's Chris's, who was on the tour as well. Tom's sort of got better and better and better and started winning world titles and stuff like that. And um, the, he's come to me and he's gone, I'm in this pool, wave pool. And I said, what, a wave pool? And he said, yeah, they're going to have a contest in a pool. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And so we, we started thinking about what are we going to do with boards for that? So we sat down and we thought, this is going to be really equipment-based if we can come up with something and uh, that, that we really research the way we're going to do this and build this board. That was the father and son team of Phil and Parrish Byrne, talking about a board that Phil originally built for Tom Carroll to compete on in a wave pool event in Allentown, Pennsylvania in the 80s. We had that conversation as part of the Shaper Shack, a four-part series featuring 19 different shapers from around Australia, from the Burns to Simon Anderson to Daniel Thompson. The series really digs into modern surfboard building business and how these guys are navigating it. We have new episodes every Tuesday in April. Just search for Creators and Innovators in your podcast app and enjoy. The subject of today's show is an Australian surfboard building business called Kinnerode. They're disrupting the industry on the Gold Coast with a shaping robot that automates more steps in the shaping process than previous shaping machines. But it's more than just the tech. Kinnerode is actually disrupting the way that board building business is structured and operated with the objective to increase domestic jobs and wages. The model is designed to fortify domestic industry and reduce the need for imported surfboards. Scott Fenton will fill us in on all of that information in just a moment. But first, in honor of Earth Day this month, it was just on Monday, Nick Timponi is providing these weekly sustainability PSAs. His father runs Timponi Surfboards on Maui, and Nick went away and he got his degree in sustainable science management and then worked with Pops to develop this Maui Leaf Light surfboard construction, which is recycled or solar made foam as the surfboard blank, hemp and flax cloth laminated with bio resin so when you buy a tim pony surfboard you can get either the traditional construction or this maui leaf light construction i've been riding one since october and i'm a huge advocate for it we're giving one away to one of our show's supporters we have a paypal donation button on surfsplendorpodcast.com donate And we just like to do these giveaways as a thank you for your support. So if you'd like to get in on this giveaway, just make a donation of any size in the month of April. We'll pick a winner at random on May 1st, and then Jeff will build your board custom to your specs, and you'll only be responsible for shipping costs. The Timponis and I decided that rather than kind of dedicating this time to discussing that board model, the pill, and its design features, we'd rather use this time to educate on sustainability at large. So... Here's our fourth installment of our series of PSAs with Nick. So what is sustainability? Acknowledging that the earth is a complex, dynamically interconnected system, we should be sympathetic to the reality of uncertainty, as our world is always moving and changing. Sustainability is best understood with similar considerations. If it's our desire to mimic nature and cause minimal disruptions to the natural systems at work, then we should be privy to the uncertainties and complexities of an evolving world. Sustainability is not just some placid endpoint or a finish line which can be reached by simply following certain steps. It's been my understanding that sustainability is better viewed as a continuous journey or a pathway that curves and bends out 
and over the horizon. We can see where it's going, but can't quite see where it ends. Navigating this journey requires the utilization of unconventional tools and viewing through lenses that can alter our perception of how we fit into the bigger ecological picture. Critical observation and some good old discipline will take us a long way. Taking cues from our environment is a good start as well. The laws of nature have never been known to stray from the truth, and we are intrinsically connected to those powerful systems. We should approach this journey with our best known environmental and social practices, prioritizing self-preservation through an engaged and responsible relationship with nature. The concept of locality is critical to the success of any sustainably minded pursuit. Think local and think specific. Knowing the who, what, when, why, and how will yield the best results from a problem-driven approach. Locality also considers relevant time and spatial scales, informing a best-fitting, optimal solution. But there is no one-answer-fix-all solution. Each individual place and time requires specific, tailored options for unique characteristics like the environment, society, and the economy. This is why local governments are often better arbiters of their region than national institutions are, or why a local shaper can build better boards for the waves in their local area, and why grassroots organizations have the ability to adapt and innovate much faster than a rigid top-down structured corporation. Adaptability is necessary and comes from an intimate knowledge of our surroundings, knowledge best acquired from an embedded but also open perspective, thinking globally while acting locally. It's inappropriate to think one solution will fix all problems, and the concept of locality also illuminates that addressing issues like climate change, resource scarcity, or an increasing energy demand will be mitigated with many different solutions working in unison. Energy is a great example. Alternative energy like wind and solar are essential in providing energy and reducing our global impact from fossil fuel energy production. But it's unlikely they will replace energy needs altogether due to the intermittent nature of the sun and the wind. They will need to be aided from other power sources like hydroelectric, geothermal, and even biofuels to fulfill future energy needs. A multi-layered approach working towards the same goals, creating stability from diversity. So where and how does surfing fit into all this? As surfers, we have a unique relationship with the environment. It keeps us healthy in several ways. We're some of the few people on a global scale that live and play in the ocean, testing our limits, reading its moods, knowing its power, and more often than not, stepping over plastic-covered beaches to enjoy it. We see the negative impacts in our ocean environment firsthand. All the while, surfing has become one of the most marketable lifestyles to date. There is power in our collective voice and power in our consumption habits. One of the best tools we can use to make changes we want is with the dollars we spend. As consumers, we have immense power in a profit-driven society. Our spending habits send messages to companies and industries that provide goods and services. Choosing goods or services that live up to our values and standards should be rewarded with our business. And a product or service that does not meet our standards doesn't deserve our money. We should embrace companies that strive for better transparency in their operations and more accountability for their products, waste, and carbon footprint. Furthermore, a better business should think about strengthening their contributions to the environment and society, and not just their bottom line. As consumers, we have the ability to support businesses that we agree with, and we should be moving away from the cheap and convenient mental model of the 20th century. It's hard to imagine surfing getting to the place it is today without the continued refinement of surfboards. Those surfboards, as a commodity, are a low-hanging fruit, along with refillable water bottles, LED lights, and even recycling. Surfboards hold an iconic position in our lives. They represent our intent and identity in the waves. Our boards can even represent our ideals and values that stem from our existence close to nature. Although alternative surfboard construction and materials are limited, a sustainably-minded surfboard can be an opener for a broader conversation about the world and sustainability, what it means, where we fit in it, and how our actions as individuals can make a difference. Because what is our global community but a collection of individuals? The conversation is easily spread 
and the surfboard can be the catalyst for a bigger and better conversation that needs to be happening in all aspects of life. There's no shame in not knowing about sustainability or even the environment for that matter. We should always stay curious and ask questions about what we're unsure of. Understand that nobody has all the answers and it's perfectly healthy to challenge the status quo. And finally, be particularly wary of those who wish to suppress these conversations, as they usually have something to gain from our disconnection and our lack of awareness. Thanks again, Nick. To enter to win that custom-built Maui Leaflight board, go to surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. I have photos of myself with my board, the pill model from Tim Pony. You'll be really psyched to win it. Uh, we gave one away last April, and the guy who won it sent me an email to say that it's the best board that he's had among the last five purchases that he's made. So even if you don't win this one, you should order a Maui Leaflight from Tim Pony. You'll be psyched. And that brings us back to Scott Fenton from Kenner Road. I also owe a special thanks to Jake from Shapers in Australia for facilitating this and many of my Australian interviews. Shapers distributes board building materials, but they also have a line of hardware, traction, fins, board bags, etc. And Jake was incredibly helpful in facilitating many of my interviews while I was there. So a huge thanks. And without further ado, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my chat with Scott Fenton of Kenner Road. Yes, yeah, so Kenner Road is the brainchild of Paul Winton. It started, I guess, with an idea in, well, probably as early as 2006, 2007. And that was that when you to look at the manufacturing process for surfboards, it's quite archaic. It really hasn't changed a great deal since probably the 1950s and 60s um, and because of that uh, it's quite labor intensive and probably over the last let's say 10 to 15 years we've seen a lot of production move to low labor cost countries and I think his idea was that if we could um, apply new modern lean methodologies to the surf industry we could be efficient enough to bring manufacturing back to the markets in which products are sold. And so that was the, the genesis, I guess, of Kinner Road. Um, 2010, the company was incorporated, I think. I didn't really turn up until 2015. And then when I came along, there, there was this sort of company trying to do a whole lot of different things, probably trying to do too much at once, laminating and robots and automation. And, um, and so I sort of was tasked with um, sorting out a commercialization strategy and getting it to market, essentially. What's your background? So my background, um, I've had quite a diverse sort of career. Um, in the 90s, I was a pro windsurfer. So I guess I've got a background in you know, waves and boards and, and another sport. Um, on the back of that career, I, I moved into the business side of windsurfing. So I ran one of the big... Um, windsurfing companies called Gastra. It's a group of professionals um, together with a sail designer moved from one of the other competitors in the, in the industry to Gastra. And we, yeah, we had a, a, a joint venture relationship with the brand owner there. We ran that, that brand for five or six years. Um, and then out of that, I sort of, I, for the majority of my career, I was based out of Maui, so, um, and you know, traveled extensively like from Maui to all the competitions around the world. And in the 90s, um, windsurfing was totally booming. I mean, it was just exploding. So it was a really exciting time to be part of that sport. Um, Germany and France were massive. Japan was massive. North America, really big. Um, and it was just growing like leaps and bounds. The professional circuit was um, really alive and lots of sponsorship, lots of money. Um, and so it was a really interesting time to be involved in that. And then t towards the end of my career, though, a couple of things happened. I think, um, you know, the, the, that growth kind of dropped off quite rapidly when um, stand-up paddle market came along, 
kite surfing came along. Um, I think at the same time, there was a whole lot of other choices that kids growing up could make to spend time online, for example, and do other things. So <clears throat> the windsurfing market kind of didn't um, hold much appeal to me beyond that, and I wanted to get in and do other things. So I went back to New Zealand, I did a, um, a couple of property developments, and eventually decided that um, I wanted to go back to university as an adult and, and kind of, it's something I never got to do because I went straight out of school and, and kind of wanted to be pro windsurfer. It's all I wanted to do since I was 14. Um, and so I went back to university as an adult and did a, a master's in business, which was kind of a, I guess, to understand, uh, you know, to apply formal education to the informal kind of um, businesses that I've ran and um, and so that was a sort of a pivotal part in my background that then led me to connect with the um, owners and investors of Kenner Road, and I, it kind of I kind of came full circle with the, I guess, background and boards from the windsurfing background, and you know the business aspect, the experience with Gastra and the international distribution space, um, and yeah, very quickly got kind of landed with the task of, of running the company. Wow. Um, you explained the impetus for the company and wanting to kind of run a more streamlined manufacturing business domestically. What did that look like? What, how, what elements did you guys implement or did they implement before you came along to make that happen? So when I came along, they had, um, it was funny, I, when I was introduced to this thing, I, I, I know you know a reasonable amount about manufacturing boards um, I've stood in, you know, shaping bays for years, and with seeing windsurfing boards getting shaped for myself and others, um, I was aware of the technology that was around already for, you know, machine-shaped boards, and um, I didn't really understand what what it was that they were trying to do, and um, and and was sceptical. I was like, you know, this, the machining thing's been done, and um, you know, the laminating is hard, right? It's it is a labour-intensive process. It's there's a lot of highly skilled craftsmen that are involved in making a board. I, I've seen it for you know decades, and um, and he sort of started talking about robots, and I was sort of confused as to how that might look or work. And he, we were actually in a bar in Auckland. He said, "I've actually got a prototype just down the road. Do you want to come and have a look?" So we literally left the bar, walked down the road in the middle of Auckland, and I walk into this old dilapidated warehouse and there is literally a robot there shaping a surfboard and I'm and I'm just like wow okay now I'm interested <laughs> and it just kind of grew from there so can you explain what you mean by a robot shaping a surfboard sure so um, I'll just tell you what our, how our system works now so in terms of the, the robot so okay um, <clears throat> I don't know if you, most of your listeners are probably aware of the traditional way of machining a surfboard. There's a, a simple three-axis sort of CNC machine with a big disc or a router head. So go ahead and explain it. We, I mean, traditionally, boards were shaped by hand originally. Yep. There was then a profiling sure. mechanism, basically, that was also kind of operated by hand. Yeah. CNC machines would be the next, and there's a couple of different options of yep. different head types. That's right. What are the limitations of the CNC machine, and then what is the robot? Yeah. Where do we go from there? So one of the one of the um, difficult things with uh, the CNC machine or um, you know a, th a, a three-axis sort of router machine is that generally the boards have to be placed manually on the uh, the stand where it's going to get shaped. They have to be aligned, you know, manually, indexed, uh, yeah, perfectly, perfectly. That's which is a lot of a lot of the error in machine-shaped boards comes from the human element. Actually, it's very difficult. Even if you've got a laser on the wall. If you've got a temperature variant during the day, that laser will turn and twist ever so slightly. So when they you know, machine one half of the board, the, then a person then has to turn that board, physically turn it over and, and realign it perfectly for that shape to come out without any discrepancy on the rail. Um, that's actually really hard to do. And it takes a, you know, a full-time person to run a machine like that. So the way we're different is we a robot can do many different things because it's got more um, axes of movement. Um, we can um, pick up lots of different tools. So I think in our tool set we've probably got eight or nine tools from 
you know, suction things that pick the board up to turning it over to doing a rough shape to doing a fine shape to doing a, a soft sand shape. Um, so we've got much more um, optionality with the robot. I think the biggest thing straight away that I saw was that we could actually, you know, you, our system, we rack up 12 blanks um, and basically push go. And that robot... Rack up, meaning there's a 12 blanks along the wall yep, 12, waiting to be shaped. Yep. Okay. So horizontally racked up along the one wall. On actual racks. Yeah. Got it. Um, the, the robot will pick up the bottom blank first, shape it, turn it over, shape the bottom, route the fin boxes, put that finished board back on the bottom rack, grab the next one, and cycle through that whole lot of boards okay. without any human intervention. Not only will it do that, it'll do that and align it perfectly because it's, it's handling the board from start to finish and it knows exactly what it's just shaped and therefore it can align it perfectly. Do uh, those 12 boards have to be the same design? No. Okay. No, they can be um, any kind. So we can do a, a run of one, one board. Uh, those 12 boards can be all different. Got it. So if you think about the efficiencies that that brings, when you can run uh, a machine like that 24 hours a day and our machines here run through the night without anybody there um, you know you you leave at night and there's blanks racked up and you arrive in the morning to get your coffee and there's boards all shaped it's it's kind of staggering and that's that's the efficiency that that allows us I think to do what we do and be more cost competitive than probably some of our competitors how long does it take to shape a board it takes roughly an hour. Okay. So it's definitely a longer process than, and, and I would say it's, it's a lot, you know, we, we're very particular about the final stages of that machining process so that we are as close as possible to the file, the perfect file as we can be. Um, can you explain the difference between when a board comes off the CNC machine, what stage is it at versus when the board comes off your robot? <coughs> yeah, so... Most of the machines um, out there will do uh, leave the board with a sort of a corrugated finish that then needs to be um, actually shaped. Um, finish it might, shaped. Finish shaped. It might not have the right amount of tuck, so that will need to be interpreted and shaped. Um, whereas our uh, machine will follow the file exactly and produce what the file has given us, and then there's just there's still finish shaping to be done, but it's the what I call the really high value, highly skilled stuff that just finishes the board and gets it perfect. Okay. And therefore, you know, instead of uh, a finished shaper doing, let's say, two boards an hour, maybe three boards an hour, he's doing between 10 and 15 boards out of our system. So yeah. it's just a lot more efficient. Okay. A lot of people, as soon as I said, when I explained the evolution, as soon as I said boards used to be hand-shaped, then there was a profile, then mm. there was a CNC, we already eliminated a lot of the audience who's interested in hearing about anything other than hand-shaping. Mm -hmm. um, what do you have to say to them? What is your, um, what does this do for the industry? What does this do for shaping? Is there any way to quantify a superior product that comes off of a machine versus a hand-shape? Do you even engage in that argument or that debate? Um, we so we try and stay away from that. I'll, I'll go back to, like, so there's always been that, this element of hand-shaping boards. And when you talk about hand-shaping, like hand-shaping from a raw blank, which is fantastic. And I think there should always be that part of the industry that, you know, makes a beautiful, it's, it's like a Ferrari, if you like. It's really hand-done and, and a lot of time is spent on that. And, and, you know, those boards hopefully are really expensive because they need to be because... Uh, that takes a long time that's a really skilled person that will do that um, I think what what where we come in is that if you want you know if you want to really um, get an accurate model that has been designed somewhere else and you want uh, to produce numbers at volume um, you, you need a system that can take it as close to the that digital file as possible in order for a skilled person to uh, effectively finish it um, in the best way possible. And so I think we, we give value to the, probably the larger brands who uh, have a need to have their boards replicated 
perfectly yeah. around the world. Got it. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of there was a lot of resistance to us coming with with this new technology, and it was um, it's been a fascinating journey in that respect. Um, you know, and I I think there's a whenever something new comes along, um, humans don't like change. They uh, get you know very uncomfortable with change, and um, you know the I think there was a a kind of a a sort of shock and denial that uh, there was get this machine out there that could do the perfect board. And our premise was always that you know the boards still need to be hand finished. They still need that skilled person to finish it. They're just not standing in that shaping bay for thirty minutes scrubbing out the foam that um, that the robot could do perfectly before them so they're, they're actually their time and their value is more effectively being used right at the end of the process and um, but of course what people saw straight away um, especially those that have uh, um, you know finished shaping as their livelihood was the robots are coming and this is a threat to my job and it's very topical at the moment we've got AI and we've got um, robots and the, the the threat of this um, automation and technology taking over jobs, and so it is scary. And you know, I saw firsthand the resistance. I thought we'd come with this technology, which is 10x better, and and with our mission to bring manufacturing back to Australia from the low labour cost countries, and thinking that everyone was going to kiss me on the lips. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. Um, the resistance was from you know overtly I'm not going to touch a board off the robot to very subtle of it still takes me the same amount of time to finish it and defensive kind of bargaining I'm still wanting to get my same amount of money even though I can do many more boards in the time period yeah. that I would ordinarily do off the other machines yeah um, so it's been a very uh, challenging process to get past that resistance and um, yeah, now the brands that do use us and the guys that do finish shape the boards, uh, they love it. It, 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 it. They're not, you know, they're not slaving away. It's less physical. It's more technical. Finishing the boards, it's they're doing the real stuff that really counts. The primary concern whenever you hear anybody talk about AI is that the robots eliminate jobs. Have you guys eliminated jobs? No, it's quite the opposite actually, and that's a really interesting point. And I think everybody, you know, when I do. Uh, you know, interviews and media and stuff. People focus on the robot because the robot's exciting, it's sexy, and it's different, and it's yeah, it is incredible. Um, but this, this, we, we have an end-to-end business here, manufacturing surfboards, and I don't view our business as as the robot business that shapes surfboards. We we make you know epoxy surfboards, and you've got to look at the whole company in its entirety and. Uh, we, we, I'm focused on you know lean introducing lean methodologies throughout the processes, really understanding where the skilled labour should be used and where it shouldn't be used, so that we can be more efficient. So I think you know, people get really focused on oh they've got robots when la- a lot of our process is traditional but just organised in a in a I guess a more sensible modern lean sort of methodology kind of way. Um, so to give you an indication to answer your question. We've gone from three employees to uh, in June of last year to 15 employees now, and we're making boards in Australia that would ordinarily not be made in Australia. Right. Okay. So, um, and this is what's so confounding for me and um, uh, you know challenging to me is that we are making the pie bigger here. We are not taking jobs. We are not eliminating jobs. We are bringing production back to Australia, and we are very supportive of the industry here and um, doing everything that we can to foster new people coming to the industry. We've got three apprentices here. We're training people in the way we make boards. Um, We are investing heavily into training those people and adding more people and creating a real, a really successful surfboard manufacturing business, which despite having automation in it, is still very much about skilled people. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I think um, I'm glad to hear you say a lot of that because I do believe that surf, the surf industry is growing into a new chapter, certainly with the wave pools, with the Olympics, all that sort of stuff. And there's going to be more people surfing and a larger need for boards. There's basically a transitioning from cottage industry into commercial industry. And one of the first indicators of that happening with any manufacturing is outsourcing. So we've already seen that early indicator of that outsourcing happening. And a lot of the traditionalists look at that as a threat, but there is an opportunity to learn from that outsourcing and to see those outsourcers are running lean businesses. Mm. They are implementing like professional accounting methods that the surf industry traditionally hasn't. All of these kind of bigger business things so I'm glad to see exactly what you're saying is like taking a lead from running the lean business. What can we do to improve the way or to eliminate costs basically from the traditional model and then implement it here on domestic land? Absolutely. And yeah. keep the employees here. Too. Yeah. And I think if, we, if, you know, if there isn't that work going on, unfortunately, we will see more and more um, production go to Asia. If Completely. you look at some of the major brands now in Australia, they're made in Vietnam, yep. Thailand, and China. Yep. And um, you know nothing against that that model. That's um, it's cheap manufacturing, um, but we want to see the industry grow here. Yep. And so, you know, our competitors aren't here. Our competitors are in Asia, and um, what we offer is something different. So we can't quite reach the cost. Uh, the kind of costs they can because there's a lot of labor in a surfboard but what we do offer is a lower lead time what we do offer is um, you know, for example you can be more reactive to the market um, you know that a board can come out and it suddenly hits social media and boom it explodes and every we, retailer wants it we saw that we, we saw this happen with a neck bed the CI neck bed this thing came out and it's well it's kind of an odd looking board it, this new 2.0 version yeah and it went and it went nuts yeah. right and if if you if you look at it from the the brand's point of view if they had tried to predict three or five months ahead of time what they want to get made and get it made in asia and put the money up front for that container or containers of boards and wait and have them shipped and make sure they got the right sizes of the right models when you know how many models and when you look at the actual number of SKUs in a surfboard range, when there's a model and there's a different size of all those models, it's an impossible product to stock. It's a nightmare. Yeah. So, you know, Channel Islands we love because they're they lo they want locally made. They're very, um, you know, that here's a brand that what is it, it's their fiftieth anniversary this year. I mean, authenticity you can't you can't actually beat that, and they they are truly authentic in 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 the way they uh, approach the sport. 
and their view is, is we, you know, we, we want to make boards locally and it's really important to them. Yeah. So for them, it, you know, we, we had an opportunity um, to be part of their spine tech program and um, yeah, I think that it's been extremely successful for them because um, they've been able to react so quickly to the demand and, and deliver in a short time frame uh, without taking risk of going to offshore production. Yeah, um, you keep talking about being able to compete with Asian manufacturing and the kind of benefit of the Asian manufacturing is low cost. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine engineering a robot is not low cost and there's a tremendous amount of expense in what you're doing. Um, how do the economics work? Is it a long game and you're planning to make up the volume down the road? How many engineers are involved with this thing? And let's start with, where did the machine come from? Yeah. Was it specifically designed for surfing or was it from a different industry that you then modified for surfing? So the, yeah, so the, the robot itself is a standard industrial robot that we've effectively pimped out for, for machining surfboards. Robots are typically good at repetitive tasks um, that you know they're very accurate to within one or two millimeters, but the kind of accuracy you need in a in this environment is is, is more in the microns, not millimeters. Um, so a lot of the work in getting a robot to do what we've made it do is to, um, and they're all a little bit idiosyncratic in that each robot, because it's made um, from parts, is slightly different in the way and the work where it is in, in its uh, virtual space. So in order to get that accurate, we've had to map um, the individual robot's endpoint where the machine tool goes um, and then do an algorithm that calibrates where it thinks it is and where it actually is to make that adjustment through software. So there's a, there's a lot of work that went has gone into um, developing the technology that we've, we've developed. Um, so initially we had uh, Paul Winton, who's the founder, uh, tip some money in. Uh, that was match funded by um, Callahan Innovation, which is a New Zealand government fund that's particularly focused on um, investing in innovative things. And then um, as we got close to commercialization and had a working prototype, we actually raised money from a private equity firm out of Auckland um, who could see that there was a, a need for um, you know, more efficient technology in the surf industry and that it's quite possible that we had the solution to, for that need. Um, so the payback on capital here is a long game, to answer your question. Um, you know, the ambition is, this is sort of our beachhead here in Australia, the ambition is to to get this really efficient, um, lock it in. Um, you know, I'd like to be doing 10,000 boards annually here and then take it to California. Um, and, you know, CI are very keen for us to, to do that. Um, and then and then on to, to Europe. So, um, you know, long game. I think, you know, when we initially looked at it, a, a, a great success would be if one day Kinaroa was doing 200,000 surfboards around the world. Yeah. Is surfboards the long game, or is there opportunity to make other windsurf, other markets? Yeah, I think, we look, we can um, make stand-up pedal boards we can make uh, you know clubby boards for the surf life-saving industry um, we can do a lot of different things we have to shape something and then laminate over the top of it but we've been you know focus 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 is sort of my mantra we've been very focused on um, doing one thing and doing it right and nailing that um, and not trying to be too many things to too many people right. and um, you know the opportunity that we saw was in Epoxy, EPS, shortboard, high performance um, shortboards, and that's where we're focused. And so I think we won't deviate from that until we, we really have a solid foundation in that area. Otherwise, uh, I think yeah, the loss of focus is, is what really takes down growing businesses. Surfboard shapers who are using machines generally get a blank file from a blank supplier and then figure out what which of their designs fits into which blank. They design on either Shape 3D traditionally or Aku Shaper, mm -hmm. and um, they get familiar with a certain type of software, and that's kind of their lane. Mm -hmm. Can they send that file to you, and you guys can utilize that with your own software, yep. or do they have to use your software? No, so, um, yeah, we, we're interoperable with um, Shape 3D and Aku. V very early on, we were developing our own 
um, software uh, that was going to integrate probably better with what we were doing. But the uh, again, um, once people have their designs on a particular program and they've spent years honing them, it's very difficult to get them to transition out of that exactly. software, right? So I, I made a call very early on that we would change strategy there and be um, actually open to the existing software uh, companies and, and Shape3D and Aku. Uh, Shape3D is the one we use, most of the designers use these days, but both of those uh, we can we can work with. And, um, and that means that they can, it's very easy for them to you know, give us a file and, and see how our machine how a machine machines that and how it translates and um, I think one of the early learnings for uh, a lot of the designers were um, you know they were leaving a lot of fat sometimes in the rail in the tuck because the other machines aren't that accurate there and they need that to be hand shaped because it, they weren't getting the accuracy they needed well, with our machine you, you can get that accuracy so um, there was a realization that um, we've got to spend a lot more time on these files getting them right and um, and that very much we need to move resource to getting this digital thing right mm-hmm. and um, and that's a mindset change so among your 15, 15 employees how many of those employees are sitting behind a computer versus yep. laminating boards and so we have three um, three engineers one full-time software engineer um, and two mechanical engineers um, so those those guys predominantly are running the the technical robot um, end of the company, and then the balances um, really and um, all the other functions that are part of making a surfboard. Okay. So, um, but yeah, it's like it, it, I think the, the the interesting thing, the exciting thing, I think for a lot of um, shapers, I call them designers, but shapers who have seen uh, what we can do is that is that they can now you know put more effort into designing digitally and seeing um, the outcome of making small incremental changes to their designs and you know the satisfaction of finish shaping a board that's you know very very close to being there is is um, I think gives them a lot of satisfaction yeah so um, you know and it's yeah, it's been a really, really interesting journey. We've got, um, you know, T- Tomo's um, used us right from the outset, and I think he's p- probably one of those guys that has more experience than most digitally in designing that world. Um, and he's got very uh, elaborate, you know, concaves and rocker lines and channels and so on that uh, make up his designs. Um, so I think it was an immediate jump for him, and, and we're excited to be doing a, a now custom board program with Tomo in Australia, and uh, which has just launched. And um, yeah, he's sort of a guy that's um, really seen the benefit of yeah. what our technology can bring. Um, we've talked a lot about improvements and changes that you've made in the process for shaping the board. Is there anything on the lamination side? Yeah, so at the moment we, we're actually going through a process of you know um, implementing lean, what I call lean methodology. So, you know, ad- identifying non-value-add time and non-value-add processes and eliminating those to a certain extent. Um, we we disbanded the piece rate immediately when we got here. Um, so we we actually employing people. They're all employees because it was my view that you can't change uh, a legacy system. And getting people to do very different things unless you change the way they're remunerated. And if you keep people on a piece rate, there's always, effectively you've got people inside your company running their own company, and you're always gonna have resistance to um, trying new things, and I want you to do it like this, or you're gonna have a negotiation at every single stage that you're gonna change a process. Um, and that's, that's a big step change for the industry because we, you know, if we're under a, a subcontracting model, you don't take as much risk because you can turn people on and off. Uh, um, but we're here for the long term and um, decided to go with an employee model um, and what that what's that allowed us to do is to go what are the really what are the really high skilled things that that laminator is doing that only that laminator can do and let's get that person just doing that I don't want my really skilled laminator cutting out decals I don't want him cutting cloth 
I don't want him doing anything except the really high value stuff that he's very, very good at and that he should be pay, getting paid top dollar for. So the, the sort of disintermediation of all the um, of the whole process and, and putting it into um, different skill levels and therefore pay brackets has allowed us already to find cost efficiencies in the system. Hmm. Um, but, you know, we've, we've really only just begun on the landing side and we've got a long way to go. Do you think it nets or yields a higher quality product in the end? I think if you, I think the high, the quality to a large extent comes down to the quality of your people. Um, you know, we've got a great team here. I'm really proud of the people we have. Um, we've done a, a, a professional kind of recruitment strategy around number one, first and foremost, culture and cultural fit and getting the right people on the bus to start with, um, which has been slow and um, has taken up a lot of my time, but I think it's a great investment. If you get the right people and you you give them the right training and you put them in the right roles, the, the quality just happens. And that and that's part of um, you know creating from the ground up a process that um, that works. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we put a lot of time into training. We recognised that we didn't necessarily you know we wanted to bring new people into this new blood into this industry. People that uh, you know super industry has been traditionally quite difficult to get into. You know you have to know someone to know someone to be. And um, yeah, so we opened it up. We you know we had I think in our first intake. Um, in the apprentice, we had, we had 120 something applications wow. for an apprentice role from all around Australia. Wow! Um, and we had one. We ended up hiring two because we, I mean, there's some great people there. And um, and yeah, now the 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 big challenge since then has been really understanding how we train these people effectively, and um, you know, creating a, a, a software program around that to assist that training process and um, having a, a structured way so we can repeat it again and again and again as we grow um, so a lot of the groundwork for us has been done around um, you know getting ready to scale to, to do 10,000 boards right so it's not all about automation and robots it's it, you, you know you want to build beautiful superboards you, you actually need quality people well as you dig in uh, to AI and its implications what you find, I think, generally is that it doesn't actually reduce jobs. It creates skilled jobs, skilled labor jobs, yep. you know? So the menial tasks get replaced, but people get hired to do more technical tasks. That's right, yeah. that's right. And the people that are technical, um, you know, just when I we first sort of had a look at it, to see people who are really skilled doing stuff that, um, that I could do, and I'm not skilled with my hands, I'm, I'm just not. Uh, was confusing to me. It was sort of, um, have we not thought about this in a more structured way? I don't we know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, um, actually. Um, just getting organized, just getting the processes right. You know, just you know, knowing where boards are going to go after they've finished one process to the next process. Yeah. Um, simple stuff, but... Um, stuff that traditionally I don't think has been done very well in the surf industry. Yeah. Why don't you have laminate on any of your boards that say Kenner Road on them? I mean, if if the, no, the prop. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we have a, a little logo on the back of all the boards we produce. Okay. Um, that say Kenner Road. Um, so you'll see a lot of the Channel Islands. Well, we make just about all the Spine Tech Channel Islands boards in Australia, and they'll all have a little Kenner Road logo on the back. Got it. Um, We've worked, you know, we've done with some customers, like with Darren Hanley, for example, we've shaped his team EPS boards, like for Mick and Wilco and on and so on for two years. Um, those won't have our logos on them because they they laminate them themselves. Oh, okay. Um, but we've actually just started a program now for custom epoxy boards with, with Darren and we, we will be laminating those as well. So they'll have our, our little logos on them as well. Good. Yeah. Um, do you laminate boards for anybody who doesn't have their boards shaped on the robot? Yes, we do. Okay. So we have um, Gary McNeil, yep. who is uh, makes a like a, a an eco flex a flex um, glass product, 
lot of twin fins and um, sort of fishy style boards. Um, he's got a great little business, and we when we acquired the laminating side of the business, he was already a, an existing customer. Okay, and um, and has relationships with people who cut his boards, and um, and is one of those guys that's really loyal, and we respect that, and that's great. And so he continues to get his boards um, shaped elsewhere, but but likes us to laminate them. So that works too. Got it. Can you give me a rundown of your client list? Yes, it's it's. Essentially, um, Channel Islands, um, Tomo, DHD, uh, Gary McNeil. Um, those are the those are the mainstays, really. Awesome, consistent mainstays. Yeah. Is there anybody in Australia doing the volume? Uh, any laminating glass houses that are doing the volume of epoxies that you guys are doing? Um, not that I'm aware of. I think maybe Hayden in Sydney I'm not yeah. sure I mean we so we're we're currently tracking about 70 units a week um, with targets of being at probably um, 90 units a week by May um, and in epoxy that's not easy I mean in PU there's, there's for sure factories that are probably doing a lot more than that but epoxy's a, a different game it's a a more difficult product to make. It's got um, longer waiting stages between processes. Yeah. Um, there's more stages involved. Yeah. The reason why I ask is um, your goal of 10,000 boards a year is a reasonable goal and it's only limited by, like you said, kind of building the foundation to actually support it. Um, but I think it's important for listeners to know that the business is there and again, if those boards aren't being made here, they're being made elsewhere. Totally. So the market can supply that volume of boards and they're gonna get them from somewhere. So they might as well be made domestically and responsibly with people being paid a fair wage. Absolutely. And I, I um, you know, it's, I don't know very much about whether the consumer even knows or cares when they work into, walk into a shop where boards are built. Um, but I'd like to think people want to support locally made products. I, I, I just think it's a no-brainer. For me personally, when I buy a product, I choose locally made over something that's coming from offshore. Um, and so, it's, it's just a, a loyalty thing more than anything else that that supports the economy, which supports everybody. Some consumers care, some don't. I'd say the majority consumers do care. Mm. Some people just want the, or just don't care. But I think what's important to say about that conversation is that um, it's not to say that the locally made boards are a superior quality. There's good boards coming out of Asia, I'm sure. What you can say about the locally made boards, we can say it in California, I'm sure you guys have similar standards here, is that we're held to a certain level of regulation, of waste disposal, of employee treatment, of all these things where if you are getting your boards made domestically in Australia or if you live in the U.S., um, you can say that it's held to this standard and my money is going to support this cause. And even if there is a little added premium in the, in the price, it's going to make sure that those people have safe work environment. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, it is expensive uh, in Australia. Um, the labor costs are not you know, anywhere near what they are in some of those uh, Asian countries. It is a challenge. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to think people care, and I think we probably need to do a better job at making a, 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 a song and dance about Australian made, and um, you know, making consumers aware that you do have a choice when you walk, walk into a surf shop, and they're not all made in one place locally. They're they're made all over the world, and so um, I, I actually don't think. You know, Channel Islands is, is one of the hardcore, you know, all the boards in California are made in California. Um, the boards in Australia are made in Australia. I, I think some, sometimes I think they're probably not, they're quite humble people. They're probably not actually shouting loud enough about that fact. And it, it, it really is, um, you know, a, a demonstration of their authenticity and where they've come from in the surf industry. Yeah, I agree. Well. Let me ask you this. How does the consumer even know? Maybe the consumer does care what's made local. How do they know? When they walk up to a, a rack in a retail shop, 
two boards side by side made in different countries what's the indicator for them yeah exactly and i think you know i we we um are not a consumer facing brand if you like but i think we almost kind of need to get into that space um the mantra here and our factory is locally made matters and um you know maybe like like intel did the intel inside kind of consumer facing uh marketing we need to do something similar to really educate uh, the people about, it, you know, it is made in Australia and these are real people that are on your back door, doorstep that are making these boards lovingly every day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even though we sell business to business, maybe we should be marketing to consumer. Well, the Kinner Road laminate, does it indicate location of manufacturing? It does say made in Australia, but these are very small, you know, stickers on the back of the board. So I think you'll see if you if you look at a board closely, you'll see where where its origin is. Its manufacturing origin is there somewhere. Um, made in Thailand, made in Vietnam, made in China, made in Australia. Um, but I think yeah, I'd, I'd like to see more of a, a a movement around made in Australia. Does Australia ma- uh, mandate that boards that are imported have the mark? of manufacturing on them yes they do okay yeah so you'll, you'll see you'll you'll be able to know the consumer can see but it's unless it's probably i don't know pointed out to them that the retailer obviously wants to sell boards um and make margin um but i think yeah i think we need to do a better job in australia of um of talking about why what the difference is and 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 why that might appeal to right to you one thing i forgot to ask you when we were talking about epoxy lamination um do you foresee a time where that gets automated, where there's a robot laminating boards? <laughs> um, potentially, um, we're doing, you know, we are doing, still doing some work in that space, which is um, interesting. You, you know, there are tape machines out there, is what they call them, that can do layups automatically. They're still extremely expensive. Um, and yeah, I think there'll be other forms of um, lean methodologies that will be implemented before that. But eventually, yes, it'll come. But that technology will get cheap enough and efficient enough for us to be doing that as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Is there's robots doing far more technical labor than that. It's just a matter of economics. Totally. So you, you got to you got to imagine everything's possible if you look yeah. at the you know the things that humans have done yeah um but at what cost exactly and what's the capital payback and right. that's always the, the, the conversation you got to have and the surf market is actually a lot bigger than most people think because it's quite fragmented but still it's not the car industry and surfboards are cheap on the retail rack they are cheap considering all the expense that goes into yeah, it they are and they've remained that way i think because you know, essentially, there are quite low barriers to to entry for a manufacturer. Yeah. And as soon as you've got low barriers to entry, um, you've got manufacturers that can price direct to consumer and you know dismantle that margin structure that yeah. is required to sell through retail, and that that erodes pricing and margins for everyone. I'm curious um, why we've been referring to it as a robot. Like, first of all. I think uh, from a PR standpoint, people are going to be turned off by the word ro- robot. Mm. And secondarily, if you guys created it, why not brand it? And yeah, you know, yeah. Essentially, it's it's just a more advanced machine. I mean, you, you, we, we, I mean, the handshake boards. Then they came out with the planer, and then it's a tool, right? And it made it more efficient, better, yeah. and um, just like in the building industry, they came along with nail guns, and and then they they came with um, these profiling machines and. You know, you know, the world was up in arms. Oh my god! Oh my god! But and then we all got used to it, and then now we've just got a, we've just got a better machine. I know, but when people say there's a robot shaping boards, it um, it requires a bunch of follow up questions to like, what does it exactly do? Mm. But if it had like a brand attached to it, and we just know the brand does these things, you know, I yeah. feel like there'd be value there. Good um, idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, what are you currently writing? Um, my favorite board at the moment is this little CI54 fish. It is 
so just to qualify for your for your listeners I'm 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 not a very good surfer I class myself as probably an intermediate kind of surfer I couldn't translate those windsurfing skills unfortunately um, and I uh, I picked up this board I'd never ridden a twin fin before and um, I've certainly never ridden a board that small it's like 26 litres I think and I got on this board and I just feel like I've got superpowers mm. it's I think yeah, so for an intermediate surfer I think um, getting to your feet quickly and generating speed are the two things that are important I'm pretty bad at both of those things <laughs> on that board I just feel I can do anything it's mm. revolutionised my world all, all the guys here that have got you know, all our guys here surf and some of them are really, really good surfers. And they're like, oh, you've got to get off that thing. You've got to get off that thing. You'll never get off it. I'm like, I'm having too much fun. Why would they want you off that <laughs> oh, thing? Oh, because then you go back to a high-performance shortboard and you don't yeah. do this. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, getting to your feet is a user error problem, but going fast is really a equipment right. issue a lot of times. Yeah. And going fast is what you want to do. And those things are perfect for that. Yeah. Just getting up and going straight down the line. Who cares if you even do a turn? Just pump and go. Yeah. yeah. So I'm having a ball on that board. It's, and it's um, spine tech. It's a spine tech. Yeah. Um, I've got a rocket wide, um, which I'm loving as well. Um, and I've got a, a Rook 15. Um, so yeah, I'm. CI program. I'm, a C, I'm on CI program. <laughs> <laughs> Sponsored. Uh, um, Awesome. Well, is there anything else that we didn't cover that we should? Um, look, I don't think so. I think, um, yeah, this is one message. It's it's our mission is to bring you know, manufacturing epoxy surfboards back to Australia. And um, if, you know, people view the technology that we're using as evil and bad, I think that's really sad because we're actually creating jobs here. Yeah. It's a misunderstanding. And... Um, They'll come around. It's going to infect their life in all ways, you know, with self-automated cars and everything totally. else. So, yeah, awesome. Well, good work. Great to meet you, Scott. Okay, thanks all. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Scott. You can find images and videos of their yet-to-be-named robot on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And if you like this show, you can invest in it to secure its future and really our growth by supporting via surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. We are listener supported with an assist from brands like Neat Essentials, Spy, Visla, Slow Tide, RideList app, but it's an intentional decision to not fully be reliant on the surf industry for support. It gives us more maneuverability, autonomy, dexterity to be independent. So if you see the value in that for surfing, and if you see the value in this project, you are welcome to invest. We recommend a recurring $5 monthly donation. And then as a thank you, we try to do these board giveaways as frequently as possible. It's been about every other month for the last year. And for that, we owe a huge thanks to the Timponi family, of course, for their Maui Leaf Light project. All donations received in April will entitle you an entry to win that custom-made pill model. We randomly select the winner on May 1st, and you'll only be responsible for shipping costs. Again, you can see photos of my custom-made pill on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. I hope that you're enjoying this Bells event. It was quite a few lay days, but uh, man, it should finish with absolute fireworks. So I'll be back next week with an all new episode of Surf Splendor. Until then, this is David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Sailing out of their reach